Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. This is episode 35 of Discovering the Old Testament, in which we will begin our examination of the book of Jeremiah, perhaps one of the most iconic of the Old Testament prophets. As a historical figure, Jeremiah comes to us from one of the most well-documented parts of ancient Jewish history, which makes his story very interesting. The book of Jeremiah is also the most personal of the prophetic works. In it, we see the prophet's own introspection, his doubts, fears, as well as what drives him and keeps him going, in spite of profound and near-insurmountable obstacles. Jeremiah's career as a prophet spanned 45 years, the longest of any of the Iron Age prophetic figures. While prophecy, very broadly defined, does appear outside of Israel and Judah, thus far scholars have not uncovered anything in the rest of the ancient Near East that is quite like the classical Hebrew prophets, such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, nor the minor prophets, such as Hosea, Amos, Micah, Nahum, and others. Prophecy outside of ancient Israel was largely a matter of divination, or driven by spontaneous omens. Such soothsayers tended to be part of the royal court and worked for the king. Independent prophets, who worked and preached outside the court, or outside the official religious institutions, are nowhere to be found. This makes the Hebrew prophets all the more remarkable, especially considering that they were able to speak very directly and scathingly to official Israel and Judah, and usually remain alive. This is fortunate from our perspective, because they and their disciples bequeathed us a body of religious literature of tremendous beauty and power. By birth, Jeremiah was a priest. His early adulthood was during the reign of King Josiah, known in Jewish history as a great reformer who tried to restore the worship of Yahweh according to the law, which had been neglected for many years. Among other things, Josiah centralized temple worship in Jerusalem, where the young Jeremiah is believed to have spent his younger years. He also excised the worship of foreign gods and anything that hinted of it. Yahwism was returning to its former place under the patronage of a decisive young king. From Jeremiah's perspective, there was cause for optimism. That said, Jeremiah's prophetic calling, when it came, evoked the usual reluctance we see in the callings of many other prophets. Being a prophet wasn't something you asked for, at least not by this time in Israel's history. It was a daunting, difficult task that any reasonable person wouldn't want. These callings make several very important points, most of which can be summarized in the sense that the prophetic life and calling is not dedicated to self-interest, or even the conveyance of a prophet's own personal agenda. The prophet speaks for God, whether he wants to or not. In Jeremiah's case, his calling seems to have taken place around 627 BCE, about five years before Josiah began his reform movement. Jeremiah's early oracles in the first six chapters of the book 
are calls for reform and repentance and a return to the ways of Yahweh. They are certainly consistent with what we now know of Josiah's reform movement. The book itself is something of a patchwork. Like many other books of the Old Testament, it is pretty clear that there are multiple sources and various editorial hands represented. Some of the book is written in poetry, some in prose. Some of that prose speaks of Jeremiah in the third person, or simply does not assert itself to be the work of Jeremiah directly. There's nothing, really, to indicate that Jeremiah, the historical Jeremiah's words, aren't part of this book. Most scholars accept that his words are in there. It might be more accurate to say that the additions and editorial changes are a reflection of the tremendous influence this book had on the Jewish religion of its day, during what proved to be one of Judaism's darkest moments. Given his beginnings as a member of a priestly family under a staunchly Yahwist king, even though Judah had been reduced to little more than the city of Jerusalem, the Assyrian Empire that had caused so much suffering and humiliation was on the brink of collapse, to the sorrow of absolutely no one. Even though the decline of Assyria came at the hands of a resurgent Babylon that showed every intention of replacing the old boss, this was precisely what the book of Isaiah had preached and anticipated. Unfortunately, this period of transition was to claim Judah's royal hope. In spite of their long, long rivalry with Assyria, Egypt believed that a weakened Assyria between them and a vigorous, aggressive Babylon was better than allowing Babylon to establish a hegemony throughout the region. With the Assyrian army now on the run, Egypt sent an army to fight alongside them, hopefully to carve out at least a small holding for the remnant of the empire. As the Egyptian force moved up the coast through Judah to link up with the Assyrians, King Josiah attempted to contest their passage in 609 BCE. In the fight that followed, he was killed. As a result, Judah remained under Egyptian dominance until Egypt was driven out by Babylon. The Egyptian gambit failed. The combined Egyptian-Assyrian army was soundly defeated in 605 BCE by the Babylonians under then-Prince Nebuchadnezzar at the Battle of Carchemish. From this point on, Assyria ceased to exist for all intents and purposes, and Egypt lost her dominance and influence in the Middle East. Even the memory of Assyria was erased, except for references in places like the Bible. Assyrian civilization remained virtually unknown until it was rediscovered by European explorers and savants in the 19th century. For Judah, the death of Josiah was a terrible blow. Not only was the religious establishment bereft of his leadership and patronage, his successors did not fare well. Josiah's son, Jehoiaz, succeeded him, even though he was not the oldest son. He clearly had Babylonian sympathies, so the Egyptians deposed him after only three months in power. They put Jehoiakim in his place, who was a loyal subject of Egypt, and also unraveled Josiah's reforms. After the defeat of the Egyptians, Jehoiakim realigned his loyalty to Babylon, even though he was plotting to shake free of foreign control. 
In 599 he rebelled, and Jerusalem paid the price after a short siege that ended in her defeat in 598. Jehoiakim was deposed, and his son put in his place. He lasted for one year. Zedekiah, the last of Josiah's sons, then took the throne and lived long enough to see a second ill-fated revolt end in the total destruction of Judah. Zedekiah was captured, attempting to escape. He was forced to watch the slaughter of his own sons just before his eyes were put out. He ended his days in a Babylonian prison. So Judah goes from reasonable cause of cautious optimism to utter destruction in about 20 years, through a series of five kings in all that time, none of whom, with the exception of Josiah, seemed able to gain any semblance of stability or manage foreign threats. Jeremiah witnessed all this firsthand and saw the near revival of the covenant stopped, reversed, and shattered. The Bible itself contains divergent views about the nature of that covenant, whether it was an unconditional promise to which God was inextricably bound, or whether it could be abrogated or withdrawn. Jeremiah was clearly of the latter opinion, which makes him unusual, but also open to sharp criticism from loyalists who held to a form that we might call Judean exceptionalism, where God and covenant were concerned. Jeremiah was having none of it. He pointed to the northern kingdom, long since destroyed, and their temple site at Shiloh that now lay in ruins. They were just as much under the covenant as Judah, he argued. The people of Judah would fare no better unless they themselves reformed. In fact, Jeremiah's preaching went so far as to assert that even the house of David itself was under no guarantee of safety. Jeremiah predicted that the dynasty would be ended forever. fascinates readers of all ages and times for his complete, total, unflinching courage in saying what must be said, what God compels him to say. He shares an important characteristic with other notable prophets of this age, and that is his claim of legitimacy because of a vision of the heavenly court. Jeremiah even claims to have stood in God's court when the judgment against Israel was made, and specifically commissioned to bring word of that judgment to the people. From what we can assess, this claim to have stood in the presence of God in his royal court was one of the more powerful claims one could make as a prophet. Not everyone who called themselves a prophet was willing to assert this kind of credential. Jeremiah also sets for himself a standard of prophecy that predictions of what would happen in the future must pan out as advertised. If so, then the one making those predictions is indeed a prophet. In recent decades, it has become fashionable to paint the prophets of the Old Testament as speaking mostly about social issues and to de-emphasize any oracular or divinatory function. It is true that they spent time focusing on the plight of the poor and the excesses of the rich and powerful. A lot of time, actually. 
But their writings included bold predictions about the future, often as consequences of the shortcomings they saw in the people and their leaders. In the ancient view, this ability to see what was coming combined with the prophetic assertion that the God of Israel was a God who acted in history over a long horizon. He had a plan, and it was therefore not unreasonable to foresee where events were headed. One of Jeremiah's most famous prophecies is his so-called Temple Sermon. This oracle made such a strong impression, which is to say it was so shocking and scandalizing, that there are two accounts of it. One is in Jeremiah chapter 7. This one is more highly developed and includes what might be some additional embellishments. The second is in chapter 26. This one is shorter, but it is notable because it also records the reactions of those who heard the sermon. Jeremiah preached the sermon in front of the gates of the Jerusalem temple, in front of pretty much everybody who was anybody in the Jerusalem political and religious hierarchy. This took place shortly after Jehoiakim took the throne and began reversing Josiah's reforms. Jeremiah compared the fate of Jerusalem and its temple to that of Shiloh, predicting its utter destruction. The reaction of the officials is very interesting and telling. Divine promise or not, being a prophet was a dangerous business. Quote, when the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death, because he has prophesied against the city, as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, It is the Lord who sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. Now therefore amend your ways and your doings, and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will change his mind about the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, I am here in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. Then the officials and the people said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. The sheer courage shown here is astonishing. It's easy to stop at the end of what we just read and relax a little, thinking that the priests and prophets could avoid death by the general respect for the prophetic mantle. But read a little further on, and we find that it wasn't always that way. While the discussion among the people recalls the prophet Micah, who correctly predicted disaster and helped King Hezekiah ward it off, we also hear tell of a prophet named Uriah, who also prophesied against Jerusalem using words just like Jeremiah's. Jehoiakim decided to kill him. Uriah fled to Egypt, but Jehoiakim sent men to bring him back, which they did. Apparently, Jehoiakim personally killed Uriah and consigned his corpse to a commoner's graveyard. Apparently, one official, 
Ahikam, son of Shapan, kept Jeremiah from being handed over to the mob, and so spared his life. From our modern perspective, one has to ask what drives this kind of dedication, even in the face of possible death and almost certain rejection and social ostracism. Jeremiah did not suffer silently. He was more than willing from time to time to vent his soul about what it really meant to be a prophet, one called by God, whether one wanted the job or not. There are several such passages known as Confessions of Jeremiah. One of the most poignant is a section of verses in chapter 20, made even more so by James Kugel's outstanding translation of verses 7 through 9. Quote, you tricked me, O Lord, and I was taken in. You really got the better of me. So now I've become a joke. All day long, everyone laughs about me, because every time I speak, I end up railing. Thieves, robbers, I yell. Yes, the word of the Lord has come to me, for shame and embarrassment all day long. But if I say I won't mention him, I won't speak any more in his name, then a fire burns in my heart. It rages inside my bones. I am too tired to hold it in. I just can't. The life of the prophet is apparently a lonely one. The sense of isolation and aloneness of Jeremiah comes through clearly here and in other places. This is what it meant to be a real, honest-to-Yahweh prophet. So perhaps it is not surprising that some of Jeremiah's harshest rhetoric was directed at what I like to call punditry prophets, the yes-men, who made their living telling the elite what they wanted to hear. Jeremiah castigates them for the dishonesty, hypocrisy, and excess, which apparently included adultery and even idolatry. One of these was Hananiah, son of Auzur, who predicted that God would defeat the Babylonians. Like Jeremiah, he used symbolic actions to make his point. When Jeremiah wore a wooden ox yoke to symbolize coming years of slavery and servitude, Hananiah broke the yoke to symbolize coming freedom and liberation. Jeremiah replaced the yoke with one of iron. Further, Jeremiah denounced Hananiah as a false prophet and publicly predicted his death within the year for preaching falsely. Three months later, Hananiah died. Jeremiah constitutes a remarkable case study of how the devout believer responds to the collapse of the world around them, the sense of futility, the helplessness, the desire to at least try to preserve something from the wreckage that they know is coming. We will examine this and more of Jeremiah's work next time. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. 
Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.